0: When I was caring for both my baby daughter or toddler daughter and my mom, you know, I was doing things like clipping fingernails and giving them both sponge baths. Uh-huh. And, and I think, oh my gosh, you know, one of them is going in one direction towards life and the other is heading the other way. But yet they're meeting in the middle and I just happen to be that fulcrum right now.
1: Hi, everyone. This is the AgeWise Podcast.
0: Your assumptions are going to be turned somewhat upside down.
1: When we talk about aging well,
0: it's an issue that nobody wants to talk about,
1: and wisely. I was totally
0: unfamiliar with the term caregiver. You really learn what you're capable of.
1: I'm Jana Panaritis. Anne Campanella was 33 years old and hoping to become a mother when her own mother began showing signs of Alzheimer's disease. As her mother declined, Anne suffered a series of miscarriages. During this intense period of caregiving and loss, Anne had a wake up call of sorts as she was forced to do away with parts of her life that weren't working and get clear on her priorities. She wrote about this experience in her memoir, Motherhood, Lost and Found which was recently named one of the best Alzheimer's books of all time by Book Authority. Anne Campanella is a former magazine and newspaper editor. She received the Poet Laureate Award twice from the North Carolina Poetry Society, and her writing has appeared in local and national publications, including the best-selling series, A Cup of Comfort. Anne joins us today from Huntersville, North Carolina, where she lives with her family and her animals. And welcome to the AgeWise podcast.
0: Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here
1: it's great to have you on the show. Before we started this interview, I made the point that I really enjoyed your book, which is actually true. (laughs) And, um, (laughs) one of the things I really like about it, besides the fact that it's just so well-written and so easy to get into is that it really doesn't pull any punches. It feels really raw and real. So why don't you tell us a little bit about growing up? I know that you, you grew up out of the United States for a bit and then your, your dad brought you back. Tell us a little bit about your, your growing up, uh, in the early years before, you know, your mom was diagnosed.
0: Sure. My parents or my father was in the military. And so I was the fourth out of four kids. So I actually had less moving around than some of my siblings did. Mm -hmm. But we spent the first nine years of our life in or near Jacksonville, Florida. And I loved it. That was just my Eden. I just thought, It was the only thing I knew, and it was a safe little world. And then my father announced, I've got a job in Panama, at the Panama Canal Zone. Mm -hmm. And so he uprooted us, and off we went there for five years. And that ended up being a wonderful experience. I hated it at first, but he lured me down there with the promise of a pony (laughs) <laughs> uh, which he delivered on. <laughs> and um, so uh, five years into it, I did not want to leave because I had both a pony and a horse that I was <laughs> absolutely in love with. And then we moved to the coast of North Carolina, mm-hmm. which felt like an immense cultural shock because I had been living with people of all nationalities in yeah. Panama. And then suddenly the coast of North Carolina It's a wonderful place, but a lot of people who live there have never left, and they have grandparents and great grandparents. And people would say, "You came from Panama? Where's that? Is that Hmm. somewhere up north?"
1: Hmm.
0: And uh, (laughs) I'm like, "Uh, "No, it's actually (laughs) south." (laughs) And so I grew to love. North Carolina also. But it was an unusual growing up experience. And so I was kind of floating between different places. And it wasn't until I went to Davidson College, where I really felt like I found a home. The college actually had a horse program that I became involved in. And I found friends that I had lots of things in common with. Mm -hmm. And so suddenly I was, I felt like I found home.
1: Mm. And your home in North Carolina growing up with your parents was in Moorhead, right? Moorhead City? Or- yes, Okay, Morehead then- City. Okay. And for folks who don't know much about North Carolina, can you sort of situate that for us on the map? Is-
0: yes. Yeah. Yes. Moorhead City is that little point that comes out into the ocean, juts out about halfway down the state. It actually got hammered by Hurricane Florence. Oh,
1: yeah, I was um, worried about that.
0: Yes, yes. Um, and my sister, who lives nearby, had like 25 inches of rain. Oh,
1: my goodness. Um,
0: so, yeah, just crazy. So yeah. we were actually, we lived on like a street away from the Sound. And mm-hmm. the Sound is the water in between the mainland and the Outer Banks Islands. Okay. So It sounds beautiful. It was. Yeah. It was. Very idyllic. I, yes. Yes. And I didn't realize that, of course, until I left right. and came back and <laughs> thought, oh, my goodness, um, this is what my mother loved because she would take walks along the sound and always exclaim about the sunsets. And, and I thought, oh, yeah, there's sunsets everywhere. Um, but <laughs> But no, they were extra special right there on the water. Uh-huh.
1: Your mom seemed really happy. You have a scene in the book, you describe a scene where she's looking out onto the ocean from the the kitchen, I mean, or onto water. And yes. that painted a really vivid picture in my mind of your upbringing and how happy your mom was at that point, which yes. is very moving.
0: Yes. And she really loved nature. And mm-hmm. she is the one who sort of introduced me to just the value of the natural world and, and how much it soothes the soul and the heart Mm -hmm. and um, and, but it's kind of sad because the house that I grew up in and they lived in has been torn down but before that houses grew up along the shore that sort of blocked their view so little by little their little window of water kind of collapsed which was kind of sad
1: yeah So we should tell listeners, just to be clear, that your mom and dad are no longer living. Your mom passed away in 2002?
0: 2007. Right, because she got to see
1: the birth of your daughter. So um, let's go back to when you first noticed something was
0: different. Sure. It was a very slow sort of progression with mom. She began being more emotional than usual. Sort of her emotions didn't fit the situation She would repeat things. She began accusing my father of stealing things. She would forget appointments. But all these things were sort of just every now and then. And so, I mean, I feel kind of dumb now because as I look back, I think, well, those are some obvious signs of Alzheimer's. But I was only in my early 30s. And having not ever experienced a loved one declining into a state of Alzheimer's, I had no idea. And so I kept telling myself, oh, you know, this is okay. Maybe she's just tired. Maybe she's depressed. Maybe she just needs me to spend more time with her. You know, I I thought that I could fix it somehow, Mm. which of course I couldn't. And gradually these sort of occurrences got closer and closer together and they became more and more intense. And even then I was kind of like, well, I I still don't really want to stop my life to attend to this. Even though I knew it was serious on some level, I was so busy with, you know, taking care of our horses, doing my writing. I didn't have kids at the time, but I was probably a little depressed myself because I'd had a series of miscarriages. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was something that mom typically would have been so sensitive towards me about and Mm -hmm. so caring, Mm -hmm. but she kind of forgot or wasn't even aware that I was going through that emotional loss. And Mm -hmm. so (laughs) anyway, as I look back, I think, you know, I could have done a much better job, but, you know, we do the only thing we can do when we're in that situation.
1: And the reality is, as you referred to your miscarriages, you were dealing with your own grief. To have to go through that at the same time as you're watching your mother's demise must have been not only difficult, but confusing.
0: Yes, it really compounded the loss because part of me, you know, I wanted my mom to be there for me and she wasn't. And I was also just sad and resentful that I was ending up having to care for her when all my friends were caring for their own children. Right. And it was just such a strange place to kind of, it, it was a dark time. And I, I just thought, gosh, am I always going to be this sad person that people, you know, they'll say, how are you doing? But they don't really want to know because my litany of sad things was just a little bit too long for most people to hear. So it was, it was tough, but I'm very thankful to say that there was an end to it and I was able to come out the other side. Mm -hmm.
1: Both of your parents came across as really strong in their own ways, although I felt like you portrayed your mother as being a lot more passive than Maybe she really was, because, you know, women of that generation, too, they had a passive quality, but they also, a lot of those women really, and I put my mother in this category, too, because she's still living, and she's 89, and she and my parents, they -hmm. had a really strong marriage, and from the outside, you could maybe think, you know, he was the one in charge, but she was really formidable, and your mom sounds like she was quite formidable as well.
0: Yes, in a quiet way, and it's funny, a cousin of mine, I was talking with her, gosh, maybe just a year ago or so, and she said, you know, Ann, sometimes I see things that you've written about your mom, and I just want to tell you that she was one of the most kind of upfront people and one of the women that I admired most in my life because she believed in women's issues and she stood up for things and she just, you know, went on to tell me all these things that I had kind of forgotten because... My most recent experience of her was 14 years of confusion of Alzheimer's, but yes, she was an amazing woman, and it was such a gift to be raised by someone who had the vision that was so far beyond most women of her age, even. Mm Mm-hmm.
1: It's so, to me, so interesting what you discover about your parents after they're gone based on what people tell you. Yes. Because you really really don't have a sense of it. I know when I was growing up, my friends thought my parents were really cool and they wished that my parents were their parents. And I didn't even really get that until I was a lot
0: older. Right. (laughs) Yes, I had the same thing. I had friends who would go and sit in the kitchen with my mom and just talk for hours. Yeah. And I was a little bit jealous about it. because uh-huh. <laughs> I, I was like, well, how come we can't do that? But I didn't have the same respect that they did. I just took it all for granted. And so, yeah. I thought something. it was interesting
1: that you wrote that when you were 10 years old, your mom confessed that she was 50. And right then you started yeah. preparing for her death. Right. Yes. You, you say, right then, I think I started preparing for her death. And you wrote, as a child, I was sheltered from death. And I, too, was sheltered from death. You mm. think about how now kids are being raised. I'm not sure that, you know, death is pushed into their faces, but I think there's, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, we're a little bit more, I I hope, a little bit more candid, because I was so unprepared for my parents' death, or I guess I should say my father's death. I was unprepared for the emotional repercussions. Um, Yes,
0: I was too, and in fact, I made a point that when my mother was dying to involve my daughter in the process, Oh because I thought, I just, I want her to be aware that this is a normal part of life Mm -hmm. and not something to just be totally shocked by. Mm -hmm. And it was, you know, with my mom being 50 when I turned 10, you know, as a child, you just think 50 that's just, you know, and and now of course I'm beyond that. And I'm like, he's not that old. Um, But my daughter was actually born when I was 40 And I was born when my mom was 41. So I'm like actually right in the middle of this strange age continuum. Mm -hmm. So, you know, everything that I'm experiencing now, I think, oh, my goodness, my daughter's going to experience, could experience this in 40 years
1: because
0: I'll be the age that my mom was. And it's almost like living in an echo chamber, Yeah, particularly when I was caring for both my baby daughter or toddler daughter and my mom, you know, I was Mm -hmm. doing things like clipping fingernails and giving them both sponge baths. Uh And and I think, oh my gosh, you know, one of them is going in one direction towards life and the other is heading the other way, but yet they're meeting in the middle. And I just happen to be that fulcrum right now. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it.
1: I love how you described at the point that your mom's letter writing spiraled downward and she moved into the assisted living facility. You described learning how to talk to your mother in a new way and learning to match what you referred to as her generalities.
0: Oh, my goodness. Yes. And this makes me think of your book, too, because I remembered you, you know, working so hard to try to get your mom to write the story and thinking that. If you just worked with her, it would come, but it didn't. Mm. And I, I talked to my mom and said, hey, let's let's write letters every week like we used to. And she'd say, oh, sure, that sounds great. But then it just didn't happen. And on the phone, we would talk, and she would ask me things. And I, I would realize as she was talking that she really didn't know where I was or what day of the week it was. So I just gradually sort of learn to go along with that and say, okay, oh yeah, mom, everything's fine. And I would even be thinking, as I'm talking to her and I'm not even using my specifics, am I going to suddenly drift into Alzheimer's too? You know, is this how it happens that Mm. we just lose the Mm. specifics of what we're talking about and we're just sort of saying words, but they don't really mean anything. So it was a very strange, strange time.
1: Right. You wrote... I abandon straight line thinking and follow my mother's curves. You write, mom, like a blind woman, fumbles around with the only senses she has left. In this case, it's her intuition about people. She's always reached out to those in pain. Which makes you appreciate the fact that even if your mother cannot verbally communicate, she has got something deep down in her that is so impossible to erase that she still connects with people and other people feel it, which is just amazing.
0: Oh, absolutely. And I'm so glad that you talked about that because it it makes me think of something that Daniel Potts calls personhood. Mm -hmm. And it was something that so frustrated me when there were certain people who just kind of wrote my mom off, even though, okay, she can't function in the world in a logical manner, the way everybody else does, she still was such a feeling and maybe not thinking, but a feeling and intuitive human being. And she knew certain things. It was like she knew me more than I knew myself sometimes. And I would think, this is still mom. And so it was such a gift to have her, even though she wasn't in the package that I was used to or that I thought that I wanted. So that really you know was a sort of a transition in my own thinking of realizing I don't have that but I have this boy what a gift that was to have
1: right I wonder if you could tell us about that first visit with your mom at Duke University Medical Center and the attitude that you got from the folks at Duke Um, this was a real turning point for you tell us a little bit about that there's some great great writing in this area
0: Thank you. I'm guessing you're referring to when I got her to the hospital, the nursing staff. First, when she was taken in, they were removing all kinds of things from her suitcase, anything sharp and the kind of typical things that they do to protect patients from themselves. Mm-hmm. And mom was just sitting there, you know, just like a little child, you know, like a little flower. Yeah. And I'm thinking, she's not going to hurt anybody. And, and she was just so tender. And then later on, and I, I'm not sure if this is what you were referring to, but the nursing staff was so callous to her. Yeah. Mom at one point said, she was going to pack up and leave this hotel because she just didn't like the way things were there. Mm. And the staff, as they told me about this, they were laughing. And I thought, you know, in some ways, they probably have to look at the humor in order to survive because, you know, they're confronted day after day with difficult things. But that was just so painful to know that, you know, my precious mother was being cared for by people who really didn't appreciate her personhood and the fact that this was a hard situation for her to be in. But I have to say, there was a sweet time at the very end when we were packing up mom to have her leave. Right, I laughed. Well, and you may be thinking of something different, but she thought that um, her roommate was actually her college roommate. And I was thinking, because the way she talked about it, it, it sounded so true. I mean, I just thought, gosh, is it possible that her college roommate is here with her, you know, even though her college roommate was somewhere in New York? Well, how could, yeah, how is that? Possible. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so I thought, well, maybe. <laughs> maybe. And then later, <laughs> later I realized, no, of course not. That was just part of the disease. And, oh uh, gosh, and mom ended up, you know, going home with other people's clothes right? that's, the, that's what I was that's what I was pink thinking underwear about.
1: I <laughs> yeah. just thought that was hilarious you were packing her suitcase with other people's clothes at this point you had evolved so far in the <laughs> yeah. course of your experience at the hospital it was like well whatever <laughs>
0: you know? it, right right. I just gave up <laughs> yeah. it's like okay pink underwear oh that's fine <laughs> okay
1: we'll take that but you went in with a set of clothes and you came out with a completely different <laughs> set of clothes so,
0: <laughs> exactly that was so familiar <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) Oh, goodness. So
1: I was was curious to know why your mom, and maybe she did, and it just didn't come up in the book, but I was curious to know why your mom didn't have in-depth cognitive testing before she was even admitted. Because my mom had a three-hour long neuropsychological exam. So I wondered if that ever came came into the equation. And there was also a question I had about the fact that the possibility of Alzheimer's was not even mentioned at your first meeting with Dr. Greco, at one of your meetings with Dr. Greco, was Mm -hmm. it not even mentioned?
0: You know, that is so interesting how slowly we came to that. Mm. And I will say Moorhead City, while it's a wonderful um, community, doesn't have, um, as most coastal communities, don't have the highest medical facilities and things like that. And my mom had gone to, I believe it was a neurologist, and this was before I was very involved in things. And she ended up telling me that he said that my father had Alzheimer's, <laughs> and I was like, oh, "What? Wow!" But he didn't, and that was just mom getting confused. Mm-hmm. And I, I think he probably told her that she had it or that she might, and she just must have blocked that out. Uh-huh. Um, but we we didn't go for testing sooner. I mean, I would say probably the reason is that we were so overwhelmed with just the day to day care for my mom mm-hmm. that we could not even think beyond first of all, we didn't we didn't even consider Alzheimer's. We just thought something's wrong here and we've just, you know, as a family, we've got to take care of mom. And so we just sort of everybody pitched in as much as they could, but we weren't on top of things enough to be able to look at the big picture. And we really just weren't prepared for Alzheimer's for whatever reason, you know, I thought maybe it's because people of that generation didn't talk about it. So, you know, we grew up with just a blank there instead of, oh, you know, if people have these kind of symptoms, you really should check for this. Mm -hmm. I had no clue about that. And so it wasn't until really the situation was so far beyond anything we could imagine that me and my siblings were like, We've just got to take her somewhere because we need a break. And it was more that, even though we knew we wanted to help her, but we just thought we need help. And so that's what led to our appointment at Duke. And then she ended up staying there for a couple of weeks.
1: Right. And then panic ensued when they called to tell you they were releasing her early.
0: And, right. And which, right,
1: Which is a perfectly normal reaction because here you've gotten a break and you've got some breathing room. And then all of a sudden you find out, you know, she's coming home early. Your sister Rose, who is a nurse, starts to panic and she just, you know, says we can't take her. We're not ready. And I thought it was very right. poignant how you wrote mom's illness has made us realize how much we need each other. Your siblings. Uh, I wonder yes. if you could talk about your sibling relationships. I know that you have a, a brother, Nate, who's, who's got some mental challenges, but seems like a real... Cracker Jack guy. (laughs) Lots of ways. (laughs) Yes,
0: yes, he is. And I I should say the names have all been changed to protect them. But they, oh my goodness, my mother was such a wonderful mom to Nate, who was born with loss of oxygen to his brain. And so he has been handicapped, basically, maybe the age of a seven or eight year old for most of his life. Mm -hmm. But seeing how my mother took care of him and advocated for him throughout his life was really a model, I think, for all of us. And Nate is, he's just such a love. I mean, he is a deer and he loves sports. And so we were all, you know, would sort of rally around him. Mm -hmm. And so I think it was kind of a natural thing that when mom started showing signs, even though we didn't know what we were doing, and it was a confusing road, and we stumbled and um just didn't do it well it was still natural for us to head towards mom and just surround her mm-hmm. and so that was really a gift and and my both my sister and other brother they are just fantastic people each of us have different strengths and so we would kind of just allow the strengths of that person to to step out in that situation and you know if there were things that one of us couldn't do we'd just pull back and say this is all we can do and the sensitivity of my mom was definitely a gift that she gave to my siblings and i'm not sure i'm the most sensitive but they are incredibly sensitive and kind people so i am just i'm so blessed yeah that's great
1: well why don't we take a moment here to have you read something from the book okay I, i'd love for you to read a passage of your choosing
0: Sure. Um, I picked something out yesterday, and I was thinking I would read about a visit that I had. And this is, mm, gosh, maybe a third of the way or almost halfway into the book. It was a visit with my parents, and I still did not know, even though there'd been months and months of symptoms, I wasn't clear on what was going on. And this was kind of a turning point where I saw into what was going on with my mom. I thought, oh boy, this is way worse than I realized. Okay. And my husband and I are just leaving. Joel and I pack and load my blazer. All of my muscles are tight and the top of my head feels like someone has poured hot syrup in it. Mom follows us and hangs on to the door of my truck. Her pale blue nightgown is bunched up at her chest under a gray sweat jacket. She's wearing a pair of scuffed tennis shoes. Beneath her gown, her calves look white and cold. Her thinning curls vibrate in the breeze, and her face is stricken. She cries, don't leave me here. More than anything, I want to go home. You know, Joel, when I have to go, I say, these visits are always too short. Her fingers dig into the skin of my arm. I just don't know what I'll do. Mom's face is so earnest, I want to smile but I see the tension in her jaw. We'll be back. Thanksgiving is just around the corner, then Christmas. We'll be down for both. This is more visiting than we've done in years. Mom shakes her head. Oh, Mom, what are we going to do with you? I unwrap her fingers from my arm. Instead of holding my hand the way she usually does, she jerks away. You don't have to do anything with me. I'll just... Her voice turns firm and her chin juts out as she stares into the distance. I'll get on my little red bike and ride far, far away. And that mm. reference to the little red bike just stunned me because wow. I thought, what is she talking about? You know, here's a woman in her 70s. Mm. She doesn't have a bike you know, I thought, is she joking? I mean, all these different thoughts were yeah. going on in my head, yeah. but it was enough to go. In fact, I did kind of crack a smile, which made her furious. But then I realized, oh, okay, she really believes this and she's ready to get on her bike and go. And and I thought, so it just, it really shook me to the core and made me realize this is way more than just a little depression or something that a visit of mine
1: can fix. Right. This just does not compute. Yeah. There are so many touching moments in this book. One of them I'm looking at now where you talk about your mom she, Mom is mm-hmm. sitting on the couch when I open the front door. Oh, there you are. I was starting to get worried, she says, jumping up. I thought somebody had left me here by myself. Oh my God! I almost started crying in that. I was like, because I guess because oh. so it resonates so strongly with me, with my mom because mm-hmm. she's eighty nine as I mentioned, and she just relies on us so much. I mean, did that scare you having your mom being so dependent? It's sometimes it scares me, yeah. You know, having your mom uh, be so dependent on you.
0: That awareness was just unreal. To think every moment she needs somebody, and if somebody is not there. There's no telling. She'll walk out the door, which she did multiple times and, you know, was looking for her brother who lived in another state. And it's just like, oh, my gosh. And and it's just such a shock and a shift from, you know, being the child. And it's not just, oh, your parents are getting older and they need a little help. It's no, they are suddenly, you know, at the level of a toddler and they need constant supervision. And it's just, it is shocking.
1: Not only do they need supervision for their own safety, but they seem to need constant reassurance that they don't have to make hard decisions and they need so much guidance, Yeah, which is not how I grew up. (laughs) Those are not the parents I grew up with, right?
0: Right, absolutely. And it's funny, like just thinking... When I was telling my mom, you know, we'll be back for Thanksgiving, we'll be back for Christmas. But she was so not that kind of mother. She was like, we'll see you when we see you. Right, you know, she didn't right. put those kind of demands on me. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly it was she wasn't putting them on me, but I knew they were there. It was like yeah. If I wasn't coming, um, there was going to be major problems.
1: Yeah. How did you decide on Myrtlewood Manor, uh, the assisted living facility, which I assume is not the name of the facility, or is it? Is it?
0: Right. Yeah. It's it's not. Okay. No. So um,
1: did you have few options? How did you decide on it?
0: We had few options. And in fact, my mom, <laughs> there was one place in Moorhead City where she had visited many of her friends over the years, and she had told us in no uncertain terms She did not want to go there, and that was just clear, and it probably would have been a really nice place for her to be, but Mm -hmm. because it represented old age or something, she was like, no. So then we just had to find what was convenient, really, and there weren't many places, so Mm -hmm. we just took what we could. Mm -hmm. And my father was willing to eventually join her there, so we couldn't have anything too expensive because he kept Mm -hmm. telling me, Why would I pay for assisted living when it's free to live at home? And, of course, the reasons, like, well, Dad, the house is a wreck and, you know, you are a mess. And, you know, he couldn't quite take that in, but. Yeah. Oh, they don't Um, want to hear that. No. No.
1: So throughout the book, there's this constant push pull between wanting a child of your own and being unable to Mm -hmm. have one and taking on your parents' needs as if they were your children. So what's really unusual, I think, about this book, because I've read a lot of books about Alzheimer's and what's unusual about this book, I think, is that structurally going back and forth like this is, well, it's a great device. I don't mean to diminish the the Mm -hmm. emotional impact, Mm -hmm. but it's a really great device. And it works really, really well. There's a point where your husband, Joel, talks about looking ahead and all you can say is, I wish I could, but right now, this is my life. Which, again, another familiar refrain Mm. for caregivers and this inability that we have to look ahead when we're right in the center of the storm. Yes. How did you deal with that? How did you just get through it day to day?
0: Mm, Goodness. I have to say there was a lot of, prayer. I mean, Mm. I can remember night after night, just, uh, gosh, I would spend late evenings with my laptop perched on my knees, trying to search for other people's stories, just to find, you know, is there anyone else out there? Because I felt so alone, particularly being the age that I was, with all my peers doing other things. And so, it was hard. There weren't a lot of memoirs. There weren't a lot of personal stories at that time, because this was maybe 20 years ago. Mm. And then, you know, when I would lie down in bed, I would just think life just looked so gray. You know, there was nothing that I didn't see the sun shining in any sector of my life. And I would just close my eyes and just pray, you know, just help me through the day. Just help me get through tomorrow. Um It was just a long stretch, which again, you know, now that I'm outside of that, I wish that I had been able to tell, you know, my younger self that it's not going to last forever and that really the, the curtain will be drawn, the sun does shine. And I think if I'd even had friends or a community, I actually went to a couple of support groups but ended up not staying with them because they were all people of just completely different circumstances. You know, most of them were 30 years older than me Mm -hmm. and they really couldn't relate to my concerns. And so, you know, one of the things I just so want to do now is to reach out to those who are in these difficult circumstances and help them know that there really is hope and there's life and there's community. You don't have to struggle with this alone. And, and that's one of the things I just love about your podcast. You know, you are sharing that there is life beyond and you give a perspective, which is so just wonderful.
1: Oh, thanks. Well, maybe this is a good time for us to talk about all authors. Tell us about yeah. this wonderful organization that you're a part of and you're really involved in.
0: Oh, I would love to. When I, gosh, when my book was picked up by a large press, Pegasus and Divine Phoenix together. My publisher just encouraged me to get the book out on as many channels as I possibly could. And one of the communities that I ran across was All's Authors. And I contacted Jean Lee, who was one of the founders, and she invited me to submit a post. And what All's Authors does is they collect blog posts written by people who have written books and blogs about Alzheimer's and dementia. And she accepted my post and then a few months later, maybe six months later, invited me to be a member of the management team. And I was thrilled because I just loved the mission of All's Authors, which is really to shed light and awareness on the disease and also really provide a sense of community for those who are going through Alzheimer's and dementia. And the number of books that we have, I think right now we're up to around 170 books and blogs, maybe more than that. And we are just beginning to sort of come out from behind the computer screen. Mm-hmm. There's a group of us, six people on the management team that actually are uh, live across the country. One is in Washington State, New York, Ohio, Montana, I'm in New York, North Carolina, and we actually have our art director in Canada, but we are creating events where we can share the resources that our authors have produced. And we just did this in Charlotte and I was kind of headed that situation up and we had gosh over 60 books donated by our authors. And we had a table, actually several tables, at the Alzheimer's Association Dementia Care Conference. And it was such a wonderful gift to be there because about 20 years ago, I had actually gone to that same conference looking for basically hope Mm -hmm. because I was in the middle of the situation with my mom. And I didn't really find it, you know, I thought there's probably some people that have some stories that I would be interested in, but there wasn't an opportunity to connect with them. Mm -hmm. And then now, 20 years later, here we are in Charlotte, and we have these 60-plus books spread out on the tables. Jean and I were actually speaking in breakout sessions, Mm -hmm. and people were coming to our tables just so excited because we were actually giving away all the books. We had a big raffle. And to actually connect with people one-on-one and let, you know, each person that came up told us their story. They went through the books and, you know, picked up different ones and kind of held them to their hearts. We were just like, oh my gosh, this is what we were born to do, to help create community in a place that is really in desperate need of that.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, it's been very successful, which speaks to not only the strength of the mission and the folks behind it, you included, but the fact that so many people are desperate to feel less isolated to hear other people's stories and to access them in a new way. I mean, I think some of these conferences Mm -hmm. can be really wonderful, these caregiving conferences, but you have to be able to walk away with something besides pamphlets and the memory of what you heard someone say on stage. You have to have something to put in your hands and experience in the privacy of your home where you can say, you know, maybe cry a little bit with a book. It's restorative. So Mm. I I think it's a great mission and um, I commend you all for it. What do you want people to take away from this book, your book in particular? Is there anything that you want readers to take away from the book?
0: Gosh, that is a great question. I think I'd like to look at the book as kind of a roadmap through loss and grief, and not just a road that winds through those difficult things, but a road that also shows moments of beauty, times of inspiration and connection and peace, that all of those things are are intertwined, and that if you really live life fully, no matter how deep the grief is, the joy will be just as deep on the other side.
1: Well, that sounds like a great place to end, Is there anything that we didn't talk about that you wanted to raise?
0: Well, I just wanted to tell you how much I loved your book, Jana, and I I just felt so connected with you as I read it because, you know, we were in similar situations, just not prepared for our parents to be going through what they went through. And and I just, I loved how honest you were and how you, you faced things with your mom and yet like me you you didn't really know what you were facing but you were there And I I just, it made me love you, and I just thought, oh, thank you. We
1: learn so much about ourselves, really. I don't want to get too sugary here, but the reality is is that (laughs) I I learned that I didn't need to fix my mother, and more than anything, she just wanted me to be there, to be present. Yeah. And you can't underestimate the value of that. I think we often feel like, well, I won't speak for you, but I just want to fix everything. And there are some Mm -hmm. things that you don't need to fix the way you think they need to be fixed. And, yes. and and there's a great value in just accepting that really all a parent wants sometimes who has dementia is just for you to sit with them, just to be there, just yes. to be present. Yes,
0: to be. Absolutely. You I know, so agree. I-, I had the same feeling about that sense of being, how important it is. And that's we are not God. I came to the realization that I kind of thought I was and that I was all powerful and that I could fix things and nope, you know, that wasn't even close, but I had to go through this experience to recognize that and to sort of give that power away and recognize there's a greater power than me and I can do better by just sitting back and as you said, just being. Hmm.
1: Well, I'm happy to share with listeners that you did have a child, right? I mean, I don't want to spoil yes, the ending of this book, yes. but
0: I, well, I think it, it's obvious. It's kind of obvious. <laughs> yeah, mother lost and found. And, uh,
1: exactly. And I love the fact that you named her Sydney after your excursions in Australia.
0: Oh, um, yeah. Which is
1: really cool. And she's 17 oh, now, right? Whoa. She
0: is. Oh. She just had a birthday. Yeah. And it's amazing. Yeah. Wow. I'm actually working on another book about she has celiac disease that our family has had to transition to gluten-free living and so that's my next memoir and a friend of mine said you just can't stop writing about mothers and daughters (laughs) i guess not (laughs) it comes
1: naturally to you we've been speaking with writer ann campanella she's the author most recently of Motherhood Lost and Found, which we will link to on the AgeWise website as well as to the All's Authors website, which Ann mentioned at the end of this show. And thank you so much for being on the show, and thanks for all the great work that you've been doing and for writing this really, really beautiful book, which I sincerely recommend to people. Go out and get it, Motherhood Lost and Found. Thanks, Anne. I really appreciate having
0: you on the show. Thank you so much, Diana. It was my pleasure.
1: That's it for today. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode. In the meantime, if you like this show, if you're getting something out of it, I want you to tell your friends about it because I want everyone to know you're not alone. Your stories matter and your voices have power. So share this with your friends. Share the love and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. The AgeWise podcast is produced by me and it's distributed on the nationally syndicated Speak Up Talk radio network. I'm Jana Panarius. See you next time. And remember, every caregiver has a story. I want to hear yours.